it says a psalm. As if we didn't know. No other psalm has that inscription. This is the only one. It's a psalm. That's what it is. And notice that it fits very well into the section of the psalms that we've been studying. You'll see some common themes here. Psalm 98, beginning in verse 1. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly shown in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands and let the hills be joyful together. Before the Lord, for he cometh to judge the earth, with righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. We saw last time in Psalm 97 that Psalm 97 seems to be the coming of the Lord in his power and glory. What we pray for when we pray as our Lord taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. That's what's happening in Psalm 97. This psalm seems to fit the context very, very well. It's sort of like a coronation hymn that you are singing in honor now of the fact that the kingdom has now come, and here is what you are rejoicing in. We're going to sort of look at it in three sections of three verses each uh, under the heading of why should we praise God in verses 1 through 3, how should we praise God in verses 3 through 6, and then... Who should praise God in verses 7 through 9? So that'll be sort of the, the little outline we follow. Now, I was tempted to uh, look at it a little bit differently because if um, we think about songs, we, we were talking about this yesterday in Bible study. Uh, why uh, the, the idea of what is it that causes people to write a song? Notice that we are to sing unto the Lord a new song. And in a sense, what this is, is a new song fitting a new situation. Well, why do people write psalms? And when you look at the Bible, the very first psalm that you find, or song, is that of Lamech, the descendant of Cain, who has this little poetic song about how he slew a man and how he took this other woman as his wife. Sort of, I guess, not exactly the most uplifting song you ever heard in your life. But it is a song that commemorates his bravado, his macho. You know, he's the big dog, you know, and singing of himself. And so you find that that sometimes is the reason that you sing songs is when someone has done some great exploit. Uh, we, we were talking about poetry, how this develops. And you think of uh, Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, these things written to commemorate and so that you remember these great uh, victories of who, who, who was the guy? I can't think of his name now in, in the Odyssey. Ulysses, yes. Ulysses S. Grant, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, Ulysses the other, uh, the real one. 
Um, but you're commemorating his, his accomplishments, his victories, his achievements. And in Scripture, you see the same thing. Uh, when I asked you about notable songs in the Bible, what comes to mind? There you go. The maidens of Israel singing and, and notice that there's been this great victory and Saul is slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands and exactly what we're discussing it here uh, in to celebrate this triumph, the maidens of Israel are singing this song which got, them in, got David in trouble with Saul. But uh, you get the picture, don't you? Um, how about the song of Moses at the Red Sea? The Lord has triumphed gloriously. Pharaoh and his chariots drowned in the sea. You know, this is the tremendous victory that God has wrought. Um, there are sometimes songs that are dirges. And one that comes to mind is that which David wrote when he got the news that Saul and Jonathan were slain upon Mount Geboa. A uh, very sad song. In fact, we have the whole book of Lamentations is a long poetic song about the fall of Jerusalem. Um, who uh, who do we know in the Bible that was really renowned for their songwriting? Very obviously not as famous as I thought he would be. It is a he, by the way. Solomon. Among the achievements of Solomon was that he was said in I think this is in First Kings chapter four to have authored. Anybody know how many? This is extra bonus points on Bible trivia here. A thousand and five songs. It is said there that he penned. We know one of his songs made it into Scripture. The song, literally the Song of Songs, which was written by Solomon. The Song of Songs. The best one of the whole thousand and five is the one that we have the poetic celebration of uh, human love. I guess that's what it is. Um, The Catholics say that sex should only be for procreation and only for procreation. Somehow when I read the Song of Solomon, I don't really get the idea that Solomon had procreation on his mind. Uh, It was the enjoyment of of one another. It's the the joys of marital love uh, is what you see expressed in that poem. Very beautiful presentation. It's his best. It's the top, top one of the whole top... Uh, 1,005, that's the song of songs right there. So you get the picture. We've got a number of songs. The one that intrigued me in thinking about this psalm is the one that we call Mary's Magnificent. And uh, my soul shall magnify the Lord. And I'm not going to take the time to do it. I was really tempted to sort of go this way with the outline. Because you go back and read the Magnificent, that which Mary said when she went to Elizabeth's house and the babe in Elizabeth's womb leapt at the presence of its Lord. Um, it, it's quite interesting how her song follows the basic drift of this song. And you can go back and check that out. If you'll follow the, the, the lines of her Magnificat, you'll see that it follows more or less the same flow here. And so some think that perhaps Mary had this psalm on her mind as she is uttering and and singing this other song. But notice uh, here we have a new song, and again I've been trying to 
express my my conviction that we are looking here at the unveiling of the kingdom of God, the coming of the gospel, the king of Messiah is enthroned, and that the new song is the song that is appropriate for this new situation, this gospel situation. And you recall we went last time to Revelation and uh, we saw that in heaven they're going to sing this new song. And this new song, the only body that could sing it is these 144,000 who were redeemed from among men on the earth. It is the song of redemption. It's the song of salvation through the Lamb of the Blood. And it's the new song for the new gospel age, the New Testament, New Covenant age. Here we see the same thing, that there is something new that God has done. In other words, we can sing the song of Moses, but that's sort of old hat. That's, that's, these young folks don't like that old time music, you know, generally. They want new stuff. Well, here's your new stuff. The new stuff's about 2,000 years old now, but it's the new song. And it is the song of the gospel. It's the song of God's triumph, His victory. And of course, it is not over a physical enemy. It is the spiritual victory over sin, over death, that He has wrought through Jesus, His Son. And so notice here that we see God doing a marvelous thing. Marvelous. You know. What do we mean by that? What does it mean to call something marvelous? It's like in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, the son who's going to be given, his name shall be called Wonderful. What does wonderful mean? Well, it means full of wonder. It speaks of the miraculous that is going to surround this person. Well, can I point out here, this is the same thing. What is a marvel? Something that is inexplicable, something that is supernatural, a miracle. And so God is going to do this marvelous thing through His Son. And of course, when the Son comes, I mean, I, I, I hope by now you have caught a little of my excitement when I read the, the miracles of our Lord, of how they just absolutely blow the lid off anything anybody else has ever done. Yes, there were others who came before Him, prophets who did miracles. You had some heal folks, cleanse a leper, Naaman. You had some even raise folks from the dead. case of Elijah and Elisha, they were fresh killed, freshly dead, but they raised them. But you even have a story of one of the prophets hiding, well, one of the guys hiding some prophets in a cave, about a hundred of them, and he had ten loaves of bread, and he was able to stretch those ten loaves of bread and feed all those hundred prophets. Big miracle. And then comes Jesus and takes five loaves and and a few fish and feeds 5,000 folks who doesn't raise fresh kill, but Lazarus four days dead who doesn't just do the ordinary stuff, but stills the waves of the Sea of Galilee with, with His Word, cleanses lepers with a touch, commands withered arms to be stretched forth, and they are, commands deaf ears to hear, and they do, commands blind eyes to see, and they're open, and on and on we can go. It is the supernatural that just absolutely blows the lid off anyone who has ever come before Him. And and one of the great things you see about Jesus is that whereas the other prophets are always doing their thing but saying there's somebody coming 
like Moses, as great a man as Moses is, well, there's someone who's going to come and take my place. There's somebody God's going to raise up like unto me, and you better listen to him. But when Jesus comes, that's the final word, you see. There's nobody else that's going to transcend what our Lord does. And so God is going to do this marvelous thing, this supernatural thing. And, of course, all the way from Jesus' virgin birth, to the miracles that surround his ministry, to his death, to his burial, and then his miraculous resurrection. And not only a resurrection from the grave, but a resurrection to the throne. And then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon his church so that they become able to do wonderful, miraculous, marvelous things. So the whole realm of the supernatural attaches itself to this thing. No wonder you want to sing this song about the marvelous works of God Almighty. You'll notice here that he says that he has gotten him the victory. Now that's an interesting way it's put here. His right arm, no, his right hand, his holy arm. We we talked yesterday a lot of things we you're going to some of you that were here yesterday are going to get bored, but um, what did we talk about? Anthropomorphism. And anthropomorphism is to ascribe to God man-like qualities. doesn't mean he has a hand. doesn't mean he has an arm. But when we say his right hand and his arm, his holy arm has done something, what do we mean? It's his power. It's the way we... The hand is what we work with. The arm is where our strength comes from. So this is a way of describing in a way that you and I can get it that God has done this powerful thing. And notice that he didn't have any help. I like the way this is put here. He's gotten him the victory. It's not that, boy, him and us, we made a great team. <laughs> you know, I'm glad he was on our team because we probably couldn't have won if it wasn't for him. No, he didn't have any help. Uh, there's an interesting passage in Isaiah. Uh, let's see, where is that? Isaiah chapter 59, sort of after the fact. This, this came to mind. I scribbled it down here. But Isaiah 59, looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the fact that judgment is turned away and righteousness standeth afar off. I'm reading here from Isaiah 59 about verse 14. But then verse 16. Verse 16. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness sustained him. Notice the point is, he looked around and said, well, where's the Savior? Where's the Deliverer? Where's somebody who's going to straighten this out? There wasn't anybody. So he did it himself. He came to the rescue of his people. And so notice that we're singing this song about the marvelous works of God, the powerful works of God. And and again, uh, this this power, the, the greatest miracle of all, is not the cleansing of a leper. It's not even the raising of Lazarus, because after all, Lazarus went back and died sometime. He's not alive today. It didn't last. The greatest miracle of all that God has accomplished, the most marvelous work of all, is the work of salvation, and the one that required the most power. Now, we would think that power, you know, is going to be demonstrated in the physical realm, that that's the one that's going to transcend all others, but it's not. The most difficult thing that God has to do to save a sinner like you and me, He did at Calvary. I've said that Calvary is the display of the wisdom of God. 
in that it is the solution to the most difficult moral problem to ever confront the moral universe. That moral problem is how can God put a sinner like you and me in heaven and be just in doing it? That's a problem. I I sort of, in our study on the life of David, I see David attempting to sort of mimic what God does in the gospel and just is a, a miserable failure. His son Absalom has slain his older brother Amnon, run off to Gesher. And uh, Joab hires this woman from Tekoa to come be an actor, or actress, I guess in this case. And uh, she comes and tells this little tear-jerking story. David is a sucker for tear-jerking stories, you notice? Naaman did that to him when the matter of Bathsheba. But anyway, here's another tear-jerking story number two. This widow lady comes, and she's wearing sackcloth and ashes, and she had two boys, and they went out in the field, and one of them killed the other, got mad at one another, and one of them killed them. And now her relatives want her to turn over this other son so they can kill him. In other words, they want vengeance. That's their job. They're supposed to see that vengeance is carried out on the perpetrator of a murder of a member of their family. But here, the murderer is somebody in her family, and she's coming to David just all toward, of course, she's just acting, you understand. She turned the tears on and off, I'm sure. But she's, she's saying, basically, I've already lost one son, now I've got to lose two? And, uh, and David finally says, okay, I, I, if they will come to even touch a hair of his head, have them come see me, I'll take care of this. They're not going to harm your son. And then she springs the lid on the, tra- the, the trap. How come you're not doing that? You see, what she's just told him is his own story in his own family with his son Absalom who has murdered Amnon. Why don't you fetch your son back? And he said, okay. And he noticed Joab had put her up to this and he figures that out after a while. But he does it. He sort of does it. You see, he's caught, isn't he? He's caught on the horns of a dilemma. How can I show mercy to my son Absalom and yet be just at the same time. How, how do you make that work? How do you... And he tried. He brought Absalom back and then wouldn't see his face. Wouldn't come anywhere near him. You understand the dilemma he's in? If I, if I just take him back and hug him like nothing's happened, then everybody's going to say, well, you just favor your son. And, but I want him back, but I don't want... I, I, do you understand? He's caught. And it, and it just blows up. You know what happened. Absalom... Attempts a coup. Drives his father off the throne. There's no reconciliation that ever takes place. What God has accomplished in the gospel can't be duplicated. David tried his best. Didn't work. You just can't do it any other way. It took a supernatural God. It is the power of God. Isn't that what we read in 1 Corinthians 1? We preach the cross of Christ. The preaching of the cross is foolishness, but to them who are called... It is Christ, the wisdom of God, and the power of God. It is there that God bears His arm. In fact, that's the very language Isaiah uses in Isaiah 53. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has seen your power there in this display of justice there at the cross of Jesus Christ? So in other words, we are singing this song. I've, I've got to move on. I'm going to get stuck on verse 1. We'll never get any further. But we're talking about the marvelous thing that God has done, the supernatural thing, and now the power behind it. 
And notice verse 2, the Lord hath made known his salvation. That's my cue that this is talking about the salvation that he is bringing into effect that is now being proclaimed to the world. The salvation that took his power, took his wisdom to accomplish. And notice his righteousness hath he displayed, openly shown in the sight of the heathen. Again, yesterday at Bible study, we were talking about that. David in, well, Psalm 18, but it's quoted over in 2 Samuel. And David is talking about how he was in trouble. He cried out to God. God, literally all heaven broke loose to come to his aid, to his rescue. And David says, it's because I'm righteous. I have not departed from his word. I've got clean hands. I'm a righteous dude. That's why he came to my rescue. And we got into a pretty good discussion over that. What in the world David said? You're a murderer, David. You committed adultery with Bathsheba. You should have you should have been killed. By the law of Moses, you should have been executed. In fact, there is no sacrifice for crimes like what you've committed. And he admits that in Psalm 51. said, I'm guilty of blood guiltiness. I've got blood on my hands. How, how is it you've got clean hands, David? How can you say that God has come to my aid because I'm righteous unless this righteousness is from somewhere else? And that's the heart of the gospel, folks, is that, yes, God's righteousness is not thrown out the window here in salvation. God saves us because we're righteous, and yet we're not righteous in ourselves. It is, as the Reformers said, an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that doesn't belong to us. It's the righteousness of our Savior that is being imputed to our account. And we're being declared righteous when we're actually ungodly. That's what a, what a wonderful work of salvation God is doing. So God is displaying His salvation. He's making His righteousness known to the nations. And that's the heart of the gospel. That's why I'm saying that's that new song. This is, a, this is gospel music in the truest, purest sense of the word. This is gospel stuff that is being sung now in this new song. So that's the first section here I said is why we ought to praise God. Because he's done a marvelous thing. He's done a powerful thing. He has triumphed gloriously over the enemy. He has gotten him a wonderful victory. Number two, starting in verses four through six, we see how we are to worship him. Notice we're to make some noise. We're to make some racket. Let's be racket makers. Can you imagine, I, I was just thinking uh, back to, and I, I said it was Prince somebody that got married to, who was the guy, the, the girl, Kate Middleton, and I, wrong Prince, it was Prince William, wasn't it, that got married to her. I think I, wasn't Charles, who did I call, Andrew, I said it was Andrew. I made a bunch of mistakes that day, I said there were seven members of the Supreme Court and there's nine, and uh but I heard about it anyway. We finally get all this straightened out. But anyway, it was Prince Andrew that, uh, no, William, that uh, married Kate Middleton. Can you imagine, again, I, I gave the illustration, what if you had this royal wedding and uh, nobody shows up? You know, we had the wedding feast where the king invited guests. Nobody came. Can you imagine that happening in England? The royal family sending out, invitations. I mean, they don't even have to invite folks. They're going to be there. They're going to line the... Can you imagine, however, all of them coming and just standing there utterly silent? 
like a funeral procession as the bride and the groom walk by. No, they're going to make some racket. They're going to make some noise. I'm, I'm thinking about what is it that makes me make noise? What is it that gets me so excited that I make some racket? Now, if Tom's here, I'd know because I was on the phone with him when he was at Mississippi State game not long ago, and he's yelling in the phone as the game's going on. I, I mean, you think about it. We make a lot of racket cheering our team, hollering at the referee or whatever. We get all upset. We get very vocal. What else gets you vocal? That's about it. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, you know, I got to think about it. I'm not, a, Rebecca and I, we were having a spirited conversation about this whole whole matter, and, and I think she's right. Uh, why, don't, why don't we get more excited about what we're, what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're singing, what we're hearing? Why don't we, how is it that we can sit still? How can we sit on our hands? How can we keep silent? How can, if it was anything else, you, you say, well, to make racket, it's got to be important. Right? I, you know, I dare say if you win the lottery, now I'm not advocating you play the lottery, but if you won the lottery, I suppose we'd hear you hollering all the way to my house. Or if there was an invasion by an enemy and the army has marched out to meet them and you realize what's at stake, if your army is defeated, you are enslaved. I suspect when the word comes of the victory, that there's going to be a lot of noise being made to hear of the triumph of your army over an invading enemy, something of that nature. What, what is it that gets you so excited that you have to explode vocally? Zeal, you say? Yeah, and the lack of zeal. Yeah, if we are zealous about something, if we're... Uh, you know, we make a lot of noise in the political season because we get all worked up over politics, right? <laughs> we we get all excited, we get vocal, we can't keep our mouths shut about what's about to happen in November. All I'm saying is, to be, you know, for men particularly, I think that's, Rebecca and I were talking about this, how women tend to, not as a universal rule, but generally tend to be more emo- emotional, more demonstrative in certain ways. And we men, I suppose, our upbringing to control our emotions and not ever cry in front of any, you know, that type of stuff, that we're just sort of trained to keep this stuff inside. And so it's much more difficult, perhaps, for us to express ourselves except at a football game, you know. Yes, Shelley. Ah. Isn't that interesting? David dancing in front of the ark and getting called on the carpet by Michael, his wife, and says, you haven't seen nothing yet, honey. You know, and she's saying, my, how, how dignified you were today out there dancing in your long johns. Because that's what the ephod was. That's his underwear. You strip down to your underwear and you dance like a fool out there in front of the ark of the covenant. He says, we well, haven't seen anything yet. I'm willing to be just as undignified as I can be because it's the Lord. And, and what it shows is that there has to be something important to us. And when we show absolutely no emotion, 
how important is it? And when we can show emotion at a football game, but we can't show emotion at truth, Linda, it's what you care about. Yeah, yeah. You, you mothers know if something happens to your kids. Now that gets you stirred up. You don't have to have a preacher coming along saying, now you ought to get stirred up about this. You, you get stirred up by yourself. It's your kids because you care. You care about them. And so the question is, is if I can just sit here without anything welling up within me uh, when I consider what God has done for me in Christ is something wrong somewhere. And notice the psalmist is saying there ought to be some noise being made. And it ought to be, notice the type of noise. And that, and that takes in a lot of folks. Folks that can't carry a tune in the bucket can still make noise. It should be a joyful noise. Sometimes just from the noise, you can tell the emotion that attaches itself to it. You remember uh, Moses and Joshua is coming down from Mount Sinai and, and uh, they're hearing the racket down there in the camp. And uh, Joshua say, man, there's got to be something bad happening. That's the sound of war. And Moses said, that ain't, that ain't war. That's party time going on down there. You could tell from the sound, the ruckus. And so it is that this noise should be a joyful noise corresponding to our apprehension of what God has done. It should be, notice, in verse 4, a loud noise. A noise proportional to the thing that God has accomplished. I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to visualize a circumstance to where you'd be expected to just cheer. Let's have a rousing cheer, you know, and hip, hip, hooray. You know, I show from my lack of volume that my heart isn't in there that there needs to be not only noise, a joyful noise, but a loud noise. And I, I still don't understand. I realize I love music, I sing, I, and a lot of folks don't. A lot of folks, it's probably good they don't make a loud noise when they sing. But uh, I'm thinking of Sonny. He's not here to defend himself, but he fits that, that category of folks that we invite just about anybody to go sing in the choir except Sonny. Anyway. Um, but... I, it is difficult for me to sing the songs we sang tonight half-hearted. When these things are expressing truths that just shake me to the core and depths of my being, how is it that I cannot, that I look around and somebody just barely moving their mouth? Now I realize, I, and, and I understand, other folks are not demonstrative that way in music and in song. But you understand what I'm saying. If this doesn't excite your soul, what will? What will? Except this. Notice as well that it is to be the singing of praise. There in the last part of verse 4. We are to render to God the praise that is due His name because after all this is His triumph. And we are to acknowledge that fact. Now, uh Notice the variety of instruments. And, of course, this is an age-old criticism of the Church of Christ, the Campbellites, that there's no instrumental music supposed to be used in the church. But if this is the gospel song that is being sung here, this new song, 
notice that instrumentation is to accompaniment. In fact, Paul in the book of Ephesians says we're to glorify God or singing within our hearts with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The word psalm, the very word itself, means plucked. It's a picked, we'd say today picked, but it's a plucked psalm. What would you pluck? You plucked a harp. In other words, the very name psalm indicates it is a song to be sung to musical instrumentation. Notice you find that right here. Notice the variety of instruments. Sing unto the, the Lord with the harp, with the harp. Then the second one, with the voice of a psalm. And uh, pretty much everyone is in agreement here. Uh, this is a Hebrew word, zimrah. And a zimrah apparently was some sort of musical instrument. It's just translated psalm. But you'll see it over in Psalm 81, verse 2. There it is in a list of musical instruments, this zimrah. And so we're not sure exactly what a zimrah is. It's just translated psalm here. But notice we're to play with the harp, with the psalm, with the trumpets and the cornets. Or cornets, it's the Hebrew word shofar. You know what a shofar is? The ram's horn that they would blow like on the Feast of Trumpets or here, there, and everywhere. So notice that you have stringed instruments. You have uh, instruments that are plucked and strummed like a harp. You have instruments that are blown. The trumpet was made of metal. You remember they had the silver trumpets that the priests were to blow there at the tabernacle. In fact, uh, in the, um, at the Ark of Titus in Rome back earlier this year, uh, the panel underneath the Ark of Titus is the Roman soldiers looting the temple, and they are carrying out those silver trumpets uh, that the priests blew. So we got a pretty good idea of what they look like because there's there's scene of them looting the temple. Uh, trumpet uh, the trumpets were metal instruments that they would blow. They would blow these things. The shofar was a ram's horn that they would blow. Why did you blow a trumpet or a ram's horn? What what things did that indicate? Can you give me a list of things to gather to assemble the congregation? Okay, these were signal. These were signals. It's a warning. They would blow the trumpet if the watchman sees the enemy coming to alert, to wake everybody up. An announcement, any kind of news, you would blow the trumpet. Again, this is to get everybody's attention. Um, in the wilderness, the trumpet's blast was to signal the movement that they were now, you remember they were to go in formation. Uh, the tribe of Judah was to lead the way and the trumpet blast was to be the signal. We still in the old westerns, you know, when the cavalry comes to the rescue, you know, it's this. We, we forget that in those days when you didn't have radios and walkie-talkies, GPS, uh, the way you communicated with your troops is either through flags or trumpets, through the sounds. You got the signal and what the trumpet is blowing indicates. I mean, I was Boy Scout long enough to know that taps meant you're supposed to go to bed. Reveille's but means you're supposed to get up. Those are signaling the troops as to what they are to do. And so notice here that all of these things are to be employed. Uh, I, I found it interesting. One fellow, and obviously he was writing from about a century ago or maybe longer, two centuries ago, from England, because he said what trumpets did for Israel, bells now do for Christians. I never thought about that. Now, Barbara, you're from England. 
You have the church bells ring over there? You know, we don't have church bells anymore, do we? I hear them in Mexico. You'll sometimes hear church bells. Or in Salzburg, when we were there, you know, we were sort of retracing the sound of music, and uh, we were, it was getting dark, and we were over, you know, the steps where they jump up and down singing Do, Re, Mi. We, we were standing over there looking at those steps uh, there in Salzburg, and all of a sudden the bells go to ringing. And I'm sitting there, I turn to Lynn and say, you know, that sounds like those bells in the sound of, you know, when she got married and they rang, and I said, there's a reason those bells sound like that. Those are those bells. That's the bells that they taped for that scene in the sound of music. No wonder you, they filmed it there. You didn't have to build a set. Just go around town filming the locations. But even the bells, this signified. And there was times when you would ring the bells uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, special occasions, um, to signify the end of the war, the bells rang, all of these things. And, and he's right that what trumpets did for Israel for a long time in Christian culture, bells did the same thing. Now, that's just a complete sideline, just forget that. But I, I just found that interesting that we don't have bells anymore. Got a few dinglings, no bells, okay? Then finally, we come to why we're to worship God in the first three verses, how to worship Him here, and finally, who should worship Him. And basically, it is all creation. That's the short answer. Starting in verse 7, the sea is to roar, and the fullness thereof. The fullness thereof is an expression meaning everything in it. That means everything from the minas to the whales, <laughs> everything that all the ships of the sea, everything in the sea should praise God. Secondly, the world and they that dwell therein. Notice we you think the earth either got dry land or wet land, I mean ocean or dry land. Uh, if you're in the sea, you praise God. If you're on dry land, you praise the Lord. That pretty well gets everybody, doesn't it? Not many other options. Let the floods clap their hands. The idea of the rivers, it appears. The noise of the rivers flowing over the rocks. Um, the hills being joyful together. I, again, I have been in the mountains, boy, up there elk hunting. I get I get itchy this time of year because it's elk hunting time in Wyoming right now. And just think of some of those trips we took back in the mountains and you'd be up there all by yourself, hadn't seen another soul in days. And the wind comes roaring through those trees. And it's the sound of like a huge crowd. It, it, it's some, it's, you're taken aback sometimes. It's like there's this huge crowd that's applauding and clapping out there uh, from the very sound of the wind through the forest. And notice all of this is going on. The sea, the land, the rivers, the, the hills, they are doing this in verse 9 before the Lord. Because he's coming to judge the earth with righteousness shall he judge the world and the peoples with equity. When we think of him coming as our judge, usually that is a terrifying thought. But notice that to judge didn't necessarily mean to condemn. It meant to rule. Remember the judges in Israel were men who, because of their moral authority, had leadership over the nation. And God would raise up these judges to sort of settle everything down. You notice the cyclical nature of the book of Judges? They would be a godly people and then they'd go into sin 
their enemies would oppress them and enslave them, and now that they're at the bottom, they cry unto the Lord, and He would send them a judge. He'd send them a deliverer who would come and save them. And then all the days of the judge, they'd do fine, and then the judge would die, and they'd go right downhill. And that cycle just repeats itself endlessly in the book of Judges. But here comes the judge. Here comes the one who is going to reign forever. Here's the one who's going to be the deliverer of his people, the one who will settle everything down. Not often that I quote Willie Nelson. Good old Texas boy. But uh, that song about beer for my, uh, whiskey for my men, beer for my horses. Good spiritual song here. But uh, uh, send them to their maker and he'll settle them down. That line. Good line. Send them to their maker. These bad guys, we'll send them to the maker. He'll settle them down. Well, God's coming. And He's going to settle everything down. And His people getting real happy, getting real excited at the prospect of what is to come, what is unfolding in the kingdom of God. Well, I hope these songs are just full of wonderful, wonderful stuff. This new song, we got a song to sing. We ought to sing it loud. We ought to sing it joyfully. We ought to rejoice and praise our God for the marvelous, marvelous thing He has done. It wasn't something small. He had, when God has to roll up His sleeve, omnipotence has gone to work for the behalf of finite, puny creatures like us. Infinite wisdom has solved this problem that would stump the moral universe because God sent His Son as a man to take our place that He might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. But to rejoice in the solution, you've got to know the problem. I keep using this illustration. E equals MC squared. You all heard that? The most famous solution to any problem that's ever that we would know about today. Einstein's special, his his wonderful. There's not a person in a thousand that knows the problem. All we've heard of is solution. But my, these particle physicists, they understand the problem, and they and they alone perhaps are capable then of looking at the marvelous solution. In physics, they call it the elegant solution. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is for believers. It's the elegant solution. The beautiful... I, I had one time a guy who came in in one of my math classes in one of these famous theorems. I have no clue what it was. And these guys just walk in the door and start doing these equations on the board and they'll go all class long, and then the bell rings. They put down their chalk and walk out. I mean, walk in, never say a word. But anyway, he had spent the morning putting this equation, and then he turned around to the class and said, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Well, the cross of Christ, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And especially so if you understand the problem. All right, let us...
go before our great God tonight and let us render our petitions to Him. Um, 